Welcome to The Great Sources, Season 3, Episode 5. Tonight we begin our study of the next great Sefer in the series that we're focusing on in this um, season of The Great Sources, and that is the Chaybas Halavavis. Firstly, before we begin that, I want to extend a great heartfelt thank you to an anonymous donor for a very generous, a very generous donation that keeps this project going, and I want to remind the listeners in general that there are sponsorship opportunities available if someone wants to sponsor a single share, or in general, support this ongoing series or future series. So. We've completed our work of reviewing the first great Sefer of Hashkafa, Judaism. That was Amunitsa Desar of Sadiqoyin. And then we are ready, after doing that, we are ready to move on to another book that came after the Amunitsa Deus in history. And as we shall see, is very different than the Amunitsa Deus in a very fundamental way. Amunitsa Deus is about the content of belief. What is it that a Jew is supposed to believe? Chayvah is about what a Jew is supposed to be like. Not what he thinks, but rather you can say how he thinks, as we shall see. So welcome then to the study of the Sefer called Chayvas Halavavis, or Toiras Chayvas Halavavis, Chayvas Halavavis is a more accurate translation of the Arabic title. Who's the author of Chayvas Halavavis? Is Rabbi Bachya ibn Pekude. We know very little about him. We know that he lived in Andalusian Spain and was a Dayan around the 11th century, the exact date of his birth and death and even of the writing of the Sefer, is unknown. The book was written in Arabic, and here, unlike other Svarim that are written in Arabic, and there were many, of course, including Imanus Udeus, here, the author actually tells us why he wrote his book in Arabic, and he says it's in order so that it should be readable to the masses, to most people in his generation. And there's an introduction by Yehuda ibn Tibon, who was the, uh, I believe, first translator of the of the Chavis Halavavis. There was another translator too, but I think Yehuda ibn Tibon was first. Also, the same one that translated the Amunis Videus from the great Ibn Tibon family of translators. And Yehuda ibn Tibon, in his introduction, says another reason why the original was written in Arabic, at least in his opinion, although the author himself doesn't say this, Yudun Tibon tells us that Chavis Lavos was written in Arabic because Hebrew of that time was not rich enough to express the kind of subtle ideas that are dealt with in the Chavis Lavos. And by the way, that's still very true, that if someone wants to express himself about subtle concepts in classical Hebrew, it becomes very difficult. Sort of have to make up words, and of course, you, now you can use, if you wish, one can use modern Hebrew. But the rabbinic Hebrew, the Hebrew we have from the Mishnah and Gemara, and from, of course, from Tanakh, since it wasn't used, 
a very long time for these kinds of sophisticated psychological ideas or philosophical ideas, spiritual ideas. It's very difficult for an author to write in Hebrew and express himself fully. Therefore, says Yehud Ibn Tibon, this sophisticated book was written in Arabic. So the classic translation, which you might be familiar with, it's printed often with Mepharshim, Lev Taif, was done by Yehud Ibn Tibon, who, as I mentioned, was the same one that translated the Amunus Videus. He translated it at the request of Rabbeinu Meshulam of Lunil, who was the Rebbe of the Ravid Baal HaSogis. So he discovered the Sefer, Shulam Lunil was very wealthy and supported learning and had a great library, collected Sfarim, and he saw the Sefer and he was very important for him to be translated. He requested he wouldn't to translate it, and he did so. The version I'm using, uh, you might be familiar with Yudhubin Timon's translation, it's a difficult read. The version that I'm using is the translation, more modern translation, by Rabbi Yosef Kafich, the same one who, whose translation I used for the Ebenus Videus. There is an edition of Kafich's translation with the Arabic. The, the particular one I'm using has only his translation, and it was published by Feldheim Publishers, actually, in... 2004. Okay, so what is the content of this book? So today we are going to review the introduction and Sha'ar Hayichud, the first Sha'ar, the first essay subject, which is about the unity of God. So he's going to tell us all about the book and the introduction, but I want to just give you briefly before we dive right into the introduction a sense of what it is. As I mentioned before, it's a book not of what to think, but how to think. It's a book about the Choyves Halavavais, how to worship God with your mind or with your heart. And it all begins with the first essay about the unity of God. In other words, the inner worship of God, the worship of the mind and how to orient yourself to God begins with understanding God's oneness, as we shall see in today's discussion. In fact, Yudu bin Tabon calls the Sefer the book that is Yesuda Soi Al Inyan Hayichud, founded on unity. So, unity is the fundamental subject of the unity of God, is the fundamental subject of the Chavis Halavavis. And the Chavis Halavavis teaches a person how to think about a Baruch Hu, how to be oriented in his mental psychic state to a Baruch Hu. It's about the heart or mind, spirit, hidden. Uh, matters of the thought as opposed to matters of action. What are the sources of the author of Bachim Pekudei? They are, of course, Tanakh, and which he uses very liberally, also similar, but not quite to the same extent as the Amunus Udeus, but he also uses Psukim all the time to support his statements. And Muskal, logic or thought, very important source of knowledge, according to Rabbeinu Bachir Bakude, also similar to Rabbeinu And then the third thing is the Kabbalah, meaning the Messiah that we have through Chazal and the Midrashim. That is ultimately traced back to the Nevi'im. Also, he quotes, as he writes in the introduction, which we'll see, he also does not avoid quoting sages, non-Jewish sages. He considers them also useful sources of wisdom. 
Now, the structure of the Sefer, as again we will see in the introduction, but I just want to give you a sense before we dive right in. The structure of the Sefer is very important. He starts with the unity of God. From there, he goes on to the subject of Bechina, or examining reality, just for seeing the effect of God's actions, because since we can't know God directly, we have to know his actions. And each thing, each Sha'ar, or each essay, or each subject, builds on the previous one and follows from the previous one, as we shall see at the end. And the culmination of the book is love of God. So, and he explains, we're going to see that in the introduction, he explains that it all begins with understanding the unity of God and how everything develops from that step by step, which is why it's very important, if you want to understand this book properly, to learn it in order. Shar HaBitochen, where the Chavis of talks about, of course, Bitochen, is extremely popular. Shara Tshuva is also somewhat popular. People study it in Elul when they're thinking about Tshuva. But if you really want to understand this highly intellectual, in some ways, book, if you want to understand his theory of Judaism and his understanding, his philosophy of, of, the, of the mind and how we're supposed to relate to God, you really have to learn the book the way it was written and the way he develops his, his thought, which is beginning from the unity of God and taking that all the way to love of God. And of course, that's from that takes us from Hashem Alekin Hashem Echad, which is how he starts Hashem to In that sense, the whole book is telling you how you get from the knowledge of the unity of God to the love of God step by step. And now what we're going to do is we're going to jump in to the book itself, which begins with a wonderful introduction explaining what the Chayvah Salavavas are all about, what are the duties of the heart. And you could say duties of the heart, you can say duties of the mind. The word in Arabic does mean heart. Um, of course, heart is considered the seat of the intellect. So the book is about both intellect and emotions. And I think you can call it duties of the heart or duties of the mind, both adequate translations. So in his introduction, he's going to tell us what the idea of the Sefer is, what motivated him to write it, and what the structure of the book is going to be. So he begins by blessing God, who's one in the truest sense. And right there, it's very important. Right there in the beginning of the book, he puts the unity of HaKadosh Baruch Hu at the center of what his whole book is about. He doesn't say, bless God who's good, bless God the merciful, but rather bless God who's one in the truest sense. And what does it mean to be one in the truest sense? We're going to learn that today when we talk about what does the unity of God mean? What does it really mean for God to be one? God is the true one. He is the one who existed forever. And his good is constant. He created things to demonstrate his unity. We'll learn about that too. How does the whole creation demonstrate the unity of God, and everything that exists testified to his power and to his wisdom and goodness. And then he brings Pesukim that talk about God's goodness. And what is God's goodness? Well, his greatest goodness that he's given to man is that he's given man wisdom. Wisdom is what keeps the intellect alive and is the light to people's seichel and leads them to the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and saves him from his anger in this and the next world. And again, he brings Pesukim about Hashem teaching us and giving us wisdom. Now, then he goes on to this 
div division of the categories of wisdom. What kind of wisdom is there? What kind of sciences are there? So there's natural sciences to know nature. There are practical sciences to know things that allow you to do things. And then there's the Madah Eloki, the divine sciences. Divine sciences to understand Hashem, to understand his Torah, and other things like the soul and the intellect and spiritual things as in angels. All the portions of Mada, of, of knowledge, are gateways through which a person can know religion and the matters of the world. And then he goes into this idea that, okay, there's all those types of knowledge. Some of them are more relevant for religion and some of them are more useful for the world, for, for surviving in this world. The lower kinds of knowledge, the knowledge of science and the practical knowledge are necessary for this world, while the the higher level knowledge, which is the knowledge of God, is what's necessary for religion. And we must study this in order to know religion. And he differentiates further. The lower knowledges are for this world. The higher knowledge, which is about God, must not be used for gain in this world. So right away, and he brings Chazal that say one cannot study in order to become rich. One cannot study in order to get honor. Rather, we must do things not for the sake of reward, but rather for their own sake. So right away what he's telling us is that this book is a book of the spirit. It's not a book of this world. It's a book that tries to bring you to a higher level to transcend the physical world and bring you before God. The whole book is very God-focused and tries to make a person into a very inwardly focused and God-focused person. Now, how can a person know God? So he says there are three gates or three ways, paths to take towards that. All of them are part, contribute to that path. One is um, intellect that is whole and healthy. Second one is the book of the Torah. And the third is the Masera that we have from Chazal, which goes back to the Nevi'im. As any quotes here, Absadigoin said that already quotes Absadigoin numerous times. And by the way, it's very important that when he talks about the Messiah that we have from Chazal as being a source of knowledge, he says, well, that's because it traces back to the Nevi'im. What well, makes Chazal a, an important source for knowledge more than we can figure out with our own Seichel, with our own wisdom, is that they had a tradition back to the prophets. So that's revelation. Now, what do we have to know? to know religion. We have to know the duties of the limbs, which is the revealed science, the science of what we have to do openly, visibly. And then there's the science of the duties of the heart, which is the hidden science, the knowledge of, of the mind, the unrevealed science of that which stays hidden. Now, the duties of the limbs are divided in two. You remember this in Upsadigayin. There are two kinds of duties, two kinds of mitzvahs. Some of them are those that are rational, and some of them are what's called shimiyos, which are not necessarily irrational, but neither are they rational, meaning the mind, the logic doesn't dictate that you do them, but neither does it dictate that you not do them. For example, not eating milk and meat together, not wearing wool and linen together, etc. While the duties of the mind, says the Abedimachie, are all rational as it shall explain. So it's very important. What he's pointing out over here is, and it's a really interesting point, the Torah tells us to do things or not to do things that we can't understand, but it never tells a person to have a certain emotion 
or to think or to feel a certain way um, that is not something that your mind can, can, can get to understand. Which is very important because the idea is that the inner part of the person ultimately is controlled and should be controlled by maximal and full reason. While the limbs of the person, so here I think we, this is a very interesting point that Rabbi Nabachi brings out, which is this dichotomy between what the Torah tells a person to do and that the Torah tells a person to think or to feel, that the latter is all, are, are always contains um, consists of reasonable things that are logical and not just actions that are, are done as a chayk. Okay, then he says we can divide mitzvahs into mitzvahs asay and mitzvahs lays asay. Do and don't do. Everyone knows that when it comes to the mitzvahs about the actions, but when it comes to the mitzvahs that are in the mind, so he gives us a list of some of the mitzvahs which are less known because that's his whole book. He's focusing on those mitzvahs. He says he gives us a list of them to know that there's a creator, to know that God is one, that there's nothing like him, to accept worshiping him in our minds, to study him through, to understand him or to learn about his existence through studying creation, to have betachen on him, to have trust in him, to be humble in front of him, to accept his fear, to be to recognize that he knows everything that's in our minds, the desire to do his will, to love those who love him, to hate those who hate him, those things that are not visible on the limbs, that are inside the person, those are the hidden mitzvahs. And then he brings many, the azharis, the warnings are the opposite of those, and he brings other warnings that are involve the heart. So he says, well, okay, now that I divided religion into two parts, knowing the religion of what's revealed and what's hidden, so I looked at all the books that were written after the Talmud to see if I can find a book about the Torah Samatzpah, about the hidden Torah, the Torah about the inside of the person. And he says that all the books that were written after the Talmud, I found are divided into three kinds of books. Some of them are, and by the way, he does this all the way in the safe. He divides things and he further divides them and sometimes it gets hard to keep track. That's a way of writing, a way of keeping track of things, but that's what he does. So he says there are three types of books. One of them is to explain the Torah. And to explain the Torah, there are two ways to explain the Torah. Either books that explain the words and the ideas, like Rabbi Sadia, that wrote on uh, most of the Sfarim, or explaining the language of the Torah and the Diktuk, like Ibn Janach. And then there's the books of Bali Masiris that tell us also about the words of the Torah. The second type of books on the Torah. Second, I'm sorry, the second type of book he found was books that are summaries of the mitzvahs, like Sefer B'chefes Ben Yatzliach, some of them about what we have to be as like the Halachas Psukis and Halachas Gedailis, and then sometimes they're about a portion of the mitzvahs we have to be as like the Chuvis, the questions of the Ga'inim. The third type is to make us believe the Torah and prove it and answer those who argue, like Hamunis Videis, and he quotes two others from which we have very little. However, says Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, I haven't found a book dedicated to the Torah of the inner person. And I realized there's no book about it. So I was wondering, why is there no book about it? Perhaps it's not an obligation. Perhaps it's just an extra credit kind of mitzvah, but we don't have to do it. He says, well, no, I looked into it. In fact, I realized it is obligatory. And in fact, they are the foundation of all the mitzvahs. And how is he going to prove that? He's going to use his three sources. Seichel, the mind, logic, 
what's written and the tradition from Chazal. So first he starts with using arguments from logic to prove that Torah of the mind, the inner Torah, is very important. Because man has an inside and outside. He has a body and soul. And both of them were given to him from God. So therefore, we have to serve God in a visible and hidden way. Visibly through prayer, fasting, and giving charity, and learning Torah, etc., sukkah, lulav, and so on and so forth. Inner serving God with the soul is recognizing God's unity in the heart, trusting Him, accepting Him, accepting His service, fearing Him, loving Him, etc., etc., etc. Additionally, if a person doesn't want to do the mitzvahs, then the mitzvahs done with the limbs are not, b'shleim is not done perfectly. And if we would not think in our minds that we have to accept the service of God, then we wouldn't have an obligation to do it either. So therefore, if we have to serve God with our limbs, and that's very clear, it can't be that we shouldn't also serve Him with our hearts and our souls. Then I said, says Rabbi okay, fine, logic dictates that we should serve God through with our minds, but perhaps they're not written in a book because they weren't written in the Torah, so it's not what to write about. He says, no, it's all over the Torah. And then he brings various psukim that talk about fearing God, loving God, and things that have to do with the mind. Then he says, okay, so the Torah does talk about it. The Nevi'im talk about it all the time. What about Chazal? Do they talk about it? Well, in fact, says Rebbeinu Bachir, they talk about it even more than the Torah, and even more than we figured it out based on logic. We have these general statements like Rahmana Liba Bai. God wants the heart. That is what God wants. That's what it's all about. No matter what a person does, whether he does a lot or a little, the purpose is Kavana. And then he says, back to the Torah, the Torah only gives a person a punishment if he does not very well on purpose. If he does it by mistake, not Chayben Einish, rather he has to bring a carbon. Clearly, then the intent by doing the Avera is more important than the action. Perhaps then says Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar that these mitzvahs are not obligatory at all times. Oh, actually, something I skipped, but very important. He says something here which I don't know another source for this. He says similarly the same thing applies to doing a mitzvah. If a person does a mitzvah and doesn't have a kavanah l'shem shemayim, he doesn't get schar for it. Just like he said with Averis, if a person does an Avera and doesn't do it, and does it b'shoigig, he doesn't get a punishment. So if a person does a mitzvah and doesn't have kavanah l'shem shemayim, he doesn't get schar. So everything is based on the mind. Perhaps you'll say that like Shemitah and Yoibel and Karbanas, these are not mitzvahs at all times. Well, no, actually they are. And he gives these examples. And in fact, he quotes Psukim, Bitchu b'ay b'chol ace. At all times, you should trust God. So actually, this kind of worship is more fundamental than the worship done through the bodies, which is only done at certain times. Perhaps this, perhaps this, so here he's going through all these ideas about, well, why is there no book about this? How come no one's focusing on this? So he says, well, perhaps this section of the Torah is limited. And then he says, actually, it's not true. It's endless. In fact, when it says in Tehillim, that the mitzvahs are exceedingly vast, they refer to the mitzvahs of the mind because the mitzvahs of the limbs are 613. But the mitzvahs of the mind are endless. 
the details are endless. And what he means by that is that they're not quantifiable because it all depends on the situation and you can always go further and deeper. Then he said, well, maybe the reason why there's no book about it is because it's so obvious. Well, he says, no, actually, people are very far from these mitzvahs. And even people who, who most people don't even study the Torah about what they have to do. But even the people that do study the Torah, what's their purpose? Why do they study the Torah? Because they want to be considered wise. They want to get respect. So instead of studying that part of the Torah that is going to be important for him to perfect him, which is this part of the Torah, the part that's about the mind, they study the part that people will give him respect for that. And that's the part about the the um, halachas and the mitzvahs of the limbs. And these things are what you really must know. And if you don't know them, you won't do any mitzvah. For example, is it enough to accept that Hashem is one or should you study it? And he says, actually, you have to study it. You have to understand it. And this is a fundamental matter. And people who even are drawn to studying Torah, drawn to it for the wrong reasons. It's in order to get respect and therefore they're studying the parts that are not perfecting them like this. Same thing applies for the other duties of the heart. Then he brings some stories about a wise person who who um, was asked a question, it's a famous story, he was asked a question about a rear question in the laws of Gerishin. And he said to the person who's asking me, he said, look, you're asking me about something that if you don't know it, it won't harm you. Do you already know everything you have to know about the mitzvahs that are important for you so that's such that you're already asking questions about far-fetched cases in Gittin and by knowing the answer to that you don't become more perfect in your religion you don't become more perfect in your faith you don't become more perfect in your character I swear said the Shachab that for 35 years I've been looking into matters of religion and another one says I've been fixing my actions for 25 years and his point is Rabbeinu Bachi is saying here, this is a long, hard road to grow in this way. It's not just about reading this book, which we're doing today. We're getting an introduction and we're getting a sense. But if you really want to perfect yourself, this is a lifelong work. Then he says, I went to someone who claims to be one of the people who have knowledge of the Torah. So I asked him about some of this idea of the Torah about the about the mind and he said you know we don't have to study this we could rely on others and I told him that that only works for someone who doesn't have the ability to study doesn't have the understanding but someone who's able to and is lazy about it is going to be held responsible for that and he gives an example about that about a servant who had a job from his king and, and instead of doing his own homework and researching himself he just trusted others and of course, that's not acceptable if you're capable of understanding the truth of what we have in the tradition, then you are obligated to do it yourself. How does he know that? So he brings a very interesting proof, fascinating proof. He says, it says in Pasha Shoftim that if there's a matter which you don't know, right? You have a question about blood or about the law, then what do you do? You go to the Sanhedrin. So what do you go to the Sanhedrin? What do you go to the rabbis to ask? Questions about the law, about how to act. It does not say that if you're trying to figure out the unit the idea of the unity of God, or what does it mean to have betachen? How does it what does it mean to have betachen in God? 
or to dedicate your actions to him, etc., or how to do tshuva, it doesn't say you should go to the elders and follow the Messiah. Right? You're going, turning to the Chachabim, to the elders, for practical law. Apparently then, for these matters, matters of the mind, depend on your intellect and your understanding. You have to figure out yourself. As the Pastor says, you must know these things yourself. So again, he's telling us that there's a fundamental difference in matters of the duties of the heart, which is that they depend on the person, on the individual. And the Torah never says to defer to an authority about these matters. In fact, um, the idea of authority doesn't apply to these things because it's all about understanding them on your own. And um, just like the Pesach says, you have to know that yourself, so to every duty of the heart, because there's a general category of duties of the heart about the knowledge of God, knowing that Hashem is one. It says, thou shalt know. So that can teach us about the general category. Similarly, brings other Pesachim about knowing things, the things you have to know, and knowledge proceeds in rank accepting something through the tradition. However, tradition, the tradition proceeds by nature because before you study, able to study something, you need the tradition um, and then you can prove it through your mind. An idea we had in the Munizudeus too. So basically, he came to the conclusion That these are really important and there's no book about them and people aren't studying them so he started studying them and he actually found he says that the previous generations would focus to a greater degree on the Torah of the mind and he claims that the earlier generations would study mainly the fundamentals of the law and then they would focus on purifying their actions and their minds. When a question would come up about a detail of the law, then they would look into it according to their ability and derive it from the general basic rules that they had. They didn't, they didn't, says Rabbeinu Bachir, look into detailed questions before it would came up before it would come up because they would focus on these kinds of studies only when it came up then they would derive it and if it was questionable they would take on vote so this is a very fascinating thing which is very interesting to look into whether in fact you can derive this from Chazal where he gets this from that this idea that the, the particular questions that would come up in Chazal, the particular halacha questions, they never thought about them in advance. They didn't think about them in advance because they were focusing on chayvaz al-lavavaz, duty of the heart. And those questions they would only deal with as um, as a question arose. And he quotes a Gemara Brachis that says in the days of Yehud they only learned Nazikim and still they were considered they had more merits and their prayers were more effective. Um, so he brings this idea that it's not about the particulars of study or how vast a person's knowledge is of the practical Torah, but the greater level of the person is how how deep is his knowledge of the laws of the mind, how deep is his, is his uh, inner orientation to HaKadosh Baruch Hu.
Okay. And then he ends with the many psukim. The last one here is the only thing a person should be proud of is the knowledge of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. What does it mean to knowledge of HaKadosh Baruch Hu? To understand him and to recognize his kindness and goodness through, <coughs> through examining creation and studying HaKadosh Baruch Hu's actions in order to know his power and wisdom. That's what it means to have Das Hashem according to the Chavis HaLavavis. So the purpose of, of the Chavis HaLavavis is to balance the inside of the person, the outside of the person, so the person should be authentic through and through. And that is what it means to be tamim, to be complete. Tamim, T-A-M Hashem be complete with God means not only should you serve God with your limbs, but you should serve Him with your mind too. Such that one mitzvah can be worth many other mitzvahs, depending on the kavana. When Avera can outweigh many other various depending on the kavana. In fact, the thought to do a mitzvah, the desire to do it, can itself be worth many mitzvahs. Afilu chashav la'asos mitzvah, as the Gemara says, even if a person intended to do a mitzvah, didn't end up doing it, it's considered like he did. Because the purpose of the mitzvahs is not the action, but the attitude. And so he developed his studies, and one thing led to another. Until he had so much information about it that he couldn't remember it, and he was afraid he might forget it. And therefore, says Rabbi Nebuch, I decided I have to write a book about it. So that I'll have a book to consult. And, and, he figured, I'll write in such a way that other people can benefit from it too. But then, when he started, when he attempted, when he got to the point of executing what he decided to do, and writing the book, he said, you know, I realize a person like me, I can't write this book. I can't do it perfectly. I don't know this well enough. I don't, I can't write Arabic clearly enough, which is how I wrote it, because that's what people understand. And I was afraid I might do it wrong, so he wasn't going to do it. And then he says, you know what? He started suspecting that he was being lazy. And this is the it's a hard telling him not to do it. And that sometimes being careful entails not to be too careful. In other words, you're afraid you're gonna make a mistake. Well, being too afraid that you're gonna make a mistake itself can be the greatest mistake. And he says if a person would never write something or teach something until he's perfect then nobody after the prophets who were chosen by Kodesh Baruch Hu and have his aid would write or say anything teach anything so you got to do what you can and write what you know and teach what you know and therefore he says I decided I'm going to write the book and I'm going to base it on 10 Sha'arim each Sha'ar each section about one fundamental matter, duty of the heart. What kinds of proof I'm going to use, he says, it's not going to be the kind of deep questions that are that are not easy to get to the answers to in this book. And this is a very important point he's saying over here, that he's going to use proofs that are sufficient for the soul to accept, which means he's not, and we'll see this, I think, a lot in the book, that 
he's not going to get to the fundamental philosophical principles of some of the things he's saying, and some of them you have to think into them deeply and see what they actually mean on a deeper philosophical level. He's giving you a kind of talk that works for people's uh, minds and how, their emotions sometimes and how they relate to the world. And he's not getting always to the bottom, to the basic fundamental philosophical underpinnings. And then he quotes the philosopher, probably Aristo, but we don't know the source for this, about what kinds of proof are appropriate for each kind of question. Um, here he says, though, that he's going to use Sokim from the Nevi'im and statements from Chazal and wise people. Additionally, he's also going to bring from the wise men of the non-Jews, philosophers and other pious people, the non-Jews. And he quotes Chazal who say that the good non-Jews are this is what to learn from them. You shouldn't do like the bad ones. And someone says a wise thing even among the nations called wise. So therefore we should learn even from the wise and pious non-Jews. In fact, he quotes them throughout the Sefer as we shall see. So what should the subject matter be? And here's where he gets to the point of showing us how the book develops how one thing leads to another. The first thing, the most important thing, is the purity of the knowledge of God's unity. So what follows that? Well, since HaKadosh Baruch Hu is one, and we can't really understand him on his essential terms, how he is, as we'll explain, well, what could we know about HaKadosh Baruch Hu? We could only know him through his creation. So therefore, it follows after Sha'ar HaYichud, after the point of studying God's unity, follows the subject of examining the world for understanding Kodesh Baruch Hu's actions through the world. Then he says, well, what do we owe something which is truly one? Oh, worship. So then the third section is going to be about worship. Then he says, well, if, if he's truly one and he's the only one that controls things, then we should trust him. And therefore, he's going to talk about Betachin. Now, if Kodesh Baruch Hu is one and is unlike everything else, then everything we do should be dedicated and unified in focus. So he's going to talk about, then the fifth subject is Yichud Hamas, is about action being unified and having one focus. Then he thought to himself, what do we owe the true one who there's nothing like him? So we have to be kanua, we have to be humble in front of him, we have to subject ourselves to him. So that comes next. Well then, we're up to the point where a person realizes that he's not perfect and he sometimes makes mistakes. So how do you fix that? That's, then comes Truva. In order to do all these things, you need to do a cheshben anefesh. You have to examine yourself. That's the next, that's the eighth subject. Then he says that, up to the ninth subject, since Kodesh Baruch Hu is truly one, and really to understand the idea of true oneness is not possible if a person is drunk with the wine of loving this world and is and is sunk into, this, into the desires of this world. And if a person tries to clear his mind from thinking about the desires of this world through separating himself precious asceticism then he'll be able to understand yichud and that's why precious comes next that's a, a major theme in the in the book that it's necessary to be parish to be asceticism to understand in other words you have to be a non adam has kind of person in order to understand these kinds of spiritual matters as we mentioned earlier this is a book that's about making a person into a different level kind of uh, spiritual person.
And then it ends with, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the beginning, he's the one, and everything ends with him, and he's the purpose, that leads to Ahava. So that is then the final love of God, and that is the final subject of the Sefer. I decided to name the book, the Torah, the teachings of the duties of the heart. And he says that the purpose of this book is not to defend the faith. The purpose of this book is to bring out the ideas that are there deep in a person's mind. It's a very interesting idea. He says, for example, he gives a muscle for a person who who knows that there is a treasure in his house. He was told that there's a treasure in his house and um, he, the person, he digs for the treasure and he finds blackened silver, rusty silver. And he had to work on it and shine it until he discovered that it was actually, in fact, very expensive silver. Similarly, we have in ourselves things hidden in our, in our hearts. And this book is trying to work to bring them out so that a person can use them in order to approach, come close to God. And then he says, this book has everything, all the Chavis Lavavis, and this, this is what you have to study in order to know. And these 10 principles include all the duties of the heart. So study this and you'll know all of them. Then he brings a very interesting muscle of a slave, who two slaves who were given silk to work with. One of them used all the silk for the same thing, and the other one selected the various grades of silk. And used each one for the best thing for that grade. And he says, he says, similarly when it comes to the Torah, we can divide the Torah into three parts. Torah teaches us things about our mind or hearts. Torah teaches us how to act, what to do, each time and each place. And the Torah also tells us history and things about people. So you have to divide the Torah into these three parts and recognize that the highest level of the Torah, the most important part of the Torah is the part that's about the mind. The second is the part that's about the actions and the least important part is, is to know the history and the um, about people. While a fool, someone who serves Hashem without this kind of distinction is going to use all the Torah for the same thing and he's ultimately going to bring the Torah down to his level and use it for this world. So again, he's teaching us to be otherworldly. So here are the set 10 subjects of the book. The first one is understanding the purity of God's unity. Second one is examining creation to see how Hashem, Hashem's greatness and kindness through creation. The third one is accepting service of God. The fourth one is trust in God. The fifth one is purifying our actions to God. The sixth one is to be humble before God. The seventh one is about repentance. The eighth one is for a person to examine self-examination. The ninth one is about precious asceticism, separating yourself from this world. And the tenth one is about the love of Hashem. And now we are ready to jump into the first Sha'ar, first subject, which is about understanding the purity of the unity of the Creator. What is the most important principle of the religion? Benabachia says to know the purity of the unity of God. Unity, recognizing God's oneness, is what distinguishes faith from shituf. Shituf means combining something else with God. So it's the most important principle, and that's why the first thing Akash Baruch Hu says is, You shall not have other gods 
that God is one. And then he goes into the Pasha of Shema. Shema doesn't mean to hear, it means to accept. First of all, Hashem. Hashem exists. He is our God, and he's one. From that it goes to Ahava, Shema and Ahava, which he's going to explain in the last Shah of Ahava, and that he gives an intimation of the fact that this book takes you from Echod till love of God. And then the next Pasuk in Shema tells us about the duties of the heart. Which means you should connect it in your lave and know it in your mind. And then it goes to the duties of the limbs, teaching them to your children, studying at home, um, and uh, tying it as tefillin, etc. And he goes into the purpose of these things and um, how they are important to support that Yid HaKosh Baruch Hu is one. Some of them are spiritual and some of them are done with your bodies. Okay, so that tells us about the primacy of the unity of God, how it's the most fundamental article of faith. Therefore, we have to say it daily and tie it to our hands and put it between our eyes that HaKosh Baruch Hu is one. So he's going to tell us 10 things about unity of God. What is unity? How you can divide it? Meaning the concept of unity, the understanding of unity. Whether we're supposed to study it or just accept it. And how, in fact, to study it. Five Chapter 5 is going to be about the, the premises necessary to establish that there's a creator for the world. Chapter 6 is going to be how we use those premises to prove, in fact, that there is a creator. Chapter 7 is going to be proofs that the creator is one. Chapter 8 is going to be what does one mean? Different kinds of meaning of the word one. Chapter 9, that the creator is the true one and there's no other true one. Chapter 10 is about the attributes that we know through logic and that are written in the holy books and how what they mean when they refer to Kosh So chapter 1 tells us what does it mean to, this was the introduction to Shayichat. What is chapter 1? He says, what is the unity of God? It's when your heart and your tongue are equal in declaring God's unity after studying through proofs the existence of a Baruch Hu and the truth of his unity through Ian. Some people just say it with their tongues because they hear it, but he doesn't really know what he means. Some people understand it because he accepts it, but he doesn't really understand the idea of unity. Some actually study it, but think that God is one like every other oneness. God is one like there's many things that are just one, which is not the true matter of God's unity. Some people really understand it. The difference between God's unity and other ones and after proving God, and that's the most perfect form of unity. Chapter 2. People use the word God being one. People talk about God being one all the time, but without even thinking about what it means. And they could, they could say that God is one, while in their minds they consider God to be more than one. Because if they consider God to have attributes, which something which is truly one cannot have, as we shall learn later, because they don't really understand what, what it means when we say God is one, then they don't really serve in God. In fact, he says that the philosopher, I don't know, that sounds like it means Aristotle, but I don't know where it comes from, says the philosopher was right when he said, and this is a shocking statement, that the only one who serves the cause of causes and the first first, which is God, the only ones who serve that are a prophet or a philosopher by studying God correctly. Anything below a prophet or a philosopher only serves that which is below God. 
because they can't really conceive anything that exists that's perfectly one. So it's an amazing statement that he holds to truly be worshipping the cause of causes. You have to really understand unity on a very deep philosophical level. So there are four levels. Some people say it just with the words. Some people accept it, as we learned before, um, but don't really understand it. And those people who accept it but don't understand it, he says, are like blind people who are being led around by uh, uh, someone who can see. Sometimes you could have a lot of blind people. One puts his hand on the other one's shoulders and all led by a person who can see. If that person falls, then all of them stumble along with him. Similarly, if someone relies on someone else who can see but doesn't study for himself, he might end up stumbling if that person ceases to lead him. Third one is to understand him. That's like an intelligent person who doesn't know the exact, who can see, sorry, a, a person who has sight, but doesn't know the exact way to get somewhere. He eventually get there, or he might not end up getting there because he doesn't know the path. The fourth one is someone who knows it perfectly and understands it, and that's what the mitzvah is. You're supposed to know it and prove it to yourself. Perik Shlishi, third chapter. Should we prove it, or should we just accept it? Anyone that can prove this, or similar things, is obligated to. That's we discussed already in the introduction to the book. If you don't, you'll be punished. You're like a sick person who knows medicine and just trusts his doctor instead of looking into it himself. And that's what the Pasuk says. You have to think about it. It brings many Pesukim about that we have to know it and think about it. Knowing God and the Mishnah in Perkyavis know what to respond to the Apikaris. The Pasuk in Devarim says, that the Torah is our Chachma and Bina in the eyes of all the nations. Now, how could the nations recognize the Chachma and Bina unless we can prove logically the principles of the Torah? By the way, this Pasuk about the Pasuk being the Torah being a Chachma and Bina, I found many different Rishonim explained in many different ways. I think it would be a very interesting essay to go through each of the Rishonim and show how each of them explained it according to the way. Some of them in diametrically opposed ways, but this Pasuk that talks about the Torah being our wisdom in the eyes of, to the eyes of all the nations, how each of the Rishonim understood it serves as a window into their view in general. Okay. And also, says Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 3, that Akash Baruch Hu promised us that all the nations are going to recognize the truth of our religion. As the Pasuk says, in Micha, many Goyim Rabbim are going to say, let's go up to the Har Hashem and let him teach us his ways. So clearly then, the proof, the knowledge of our religion and to the mind is something that is something we're supposed to engage in chapter four how do you engage in it so well anything you want to know if we're not sure if it exists or not first we ask does it exist once we know whether it exists we try to figure out what it is why it is how it is the creator you can't you can only thing you ask about is whether he is or not and whether he's one or more than that and what does it mean to be one? But we can't ask what he's like. So the first question is going to be, is there or is there not a creator? And then we're going to figure out, okay, now after we prove that there is a creator, to this, that this world has a creator, we're going to figure out, is he one or more than one? And then we're going to figure out what kind of one is he? And then we're going to be done our studies. Or how could we describe him? What does it mean for him to be really one um, in a true way? And that's the studies that we're out to do. So chapter five begins. What are the axioms? What are the premises necessary to prove that the world has a creator? Now, these are deep philosophical speculations, which I'm going to go over briefly. Um, there are some points that I have to really just go through quickly, similar to what I did in Amunus We certainly can't explain the proofs fully, 
they are very intriguing some of them and I of course encourage you to study this in, in an even deeper level really fascinating things so here it says like this what other premises necessary to prove that the world has a creator three premises firstly something cannot make itself secondly that any principles that come bring something into being eventually have a first one meaning there can't be an infinite causal chain thirdly that anything that's composite was brought into being after not existing so now he's going to prove the three premises in this parak and then in the next chapter he's going to use these to prove that the world is created so first he proves that something can create himself. We're not going to go into the proof because it's pretty intuitive, but you can look it up. The second premise is that there can't be an infinite causal chain. He says, basically brings a proof um, that there can't be an infinite causal chain because then if something is infinite, you could take a part of it and, and that will be smaller. Infinity minus the part would have to be smaller than infinity, which is absurd. Therefore, there can't be an infinite causal chain. I think that is basically the point, and therefore that proves that the world can't have been gone on till infinity, because you could always select a certain group of people. You could always select a group of people from that world and say, well, what remains, let's say from Noyach to Moshe, right? So if the people go on till infinity, then you, sol- you subtract from Neuf to Vaisha, and the remainder has to be less than the infinity, including that, and um, which is absurd. Ergo, it must be that there's no such thing as an infinity. Okay. The third point, which is that anything which is composite has to have been come into being when it wasn't, because he says, well, anything that's composite is preceded in nature, naturally preceded by the things that compose it. Um... So therefore, it needs something to uh, bring those two things together. Okay. So therefore, anything which is composite has to have been brought together. So now that we know these three things, we can prove that the world has a creator. Why? Because the world is composite. And he shows everything in the world is um, composite. Nothing stands on its own. Everything works together. And everything is composed of the four elements. And everything, parenthetically, he comments that um, the philosopher says that a one of the philosophers thought that the spheres and the stars are made out of, are, are made out of the nature of fire, and that's similar to the pasuk that says servants are fire, which he says is referring to the heavens. Interesting. And this pasuk proves that opinion that they're made out of fire, not like Aristotle that says it was a fifth essence, a quintessence. The Aristotle says there are five ele- four elements, but then there's a fifth one, which is of the one of the heavens, which is unlike the four elements. And he says, no, the pasuk suggests that it's, or proves that it's actually from the element of fire, like one of the philosophers said. Okay, so he says everything is made out of the elements and have to have been put together. Even the elements themselves are made out of matter and form which is the same thing as substance and accidents. We're not going to go into that, that idea. Okay. But that means that everything is composite. Nothing can make itself. Um, it has to have been mechudash because it has, to have been, it has to exist after it didn't exist because it was a composite. Something cannot make itself. It must be that something made it. Well, perhaps there's an infinite causal chain. That can't be because it can't be an infinite causal chain. So it must be it ends at a creator which is what we were looking to prove. 
Now, some people think the world just came into existence randomly. He says that is a shocking idea. Nobody would say that about <clears throat> anything else that it could just come into existence randomly. That is something that he doesn't even consider to be a possibility. That's the end of chapter six. So at this point, we have proved that there's a creator. Now, chapter seven, is the creator one? Was he more than one? And he's going to prove this in seven ways. So he says as follows. He says, if you look at the cause of things, as you follow the causes, you find that they get, the causes are always less than the effects. And as you keep on going, the causes get less in number than the effects. That means like this, there's an infinite number of things. And if you make them into categories, there are less categories than the things that are part of them. And then you could make them into greater categories. And then um, you get to the the, the um, highest level categories, which are Aristotle's 10 categories, the 10 categories of everything, which is the substance, the, the um, quantity, quality, etc., etc. Aristotle's 10 categories of all beings, mentioned also by Rusadi Gain. And then if you look at those 10 categories, the cause of those 10 categories of existence are that there's motion and the four elements. The four elements are matter and form. So that's two. Now, again, so the point is like this. As you go on in the logical chain of what causes things, you always get a lesser number. When you get to two, matter and form, those have to have another cause, which is going to be one. And there's nothing, no less than two is one, so therefore God is one. Secondly, second proof, the wisdom in the whole world is uniform. The whole world demonstrates the same kind of wisdom, from the largest thing to the smallest thing. <clears throat> therefore, there's one principle, one God behind everything. The third is, we prove that the world has to have a creator. But let's say we didn't prove that the world has to have a creator, then we would say there's no God. Okay, the only reason we accept that there's a God is because we prove that the world has to have a creator. Well, the world doesn't have to have two creators to satisfy a logical proof, and those of you who accept the God is because of logical proof, therefore we should accept that there's one God and not two. The only way we know him is through this logic. Fourth proof. If God is more than one, so what are these two gods? Are they the same thing or not? If they're the same, then God is one. If each one has something different, so then there has to be something that makes them different. Something that makes them different is limited. Something that's limited is finite. Something that's finite is composite. Something that's composite, composite has to be brought into, is something that was came to exist after not existing, and therefore needs something that brought it into existence. So it's impossible then that there has to be something else, the one creator. Fifth proof is very complicated. I'll mention it briefly. Um, he says the following. He says, Euclid says that unity is that which about, is the idea, the concept that you could apply to something and makes it one. Like, for example, heat is what makes something hot. So heat, the concept of heat precedes the fact that something is hot. The concept of unity precedes that something is one. If there wouldn't be a concept of unity, nothing could be one. The concept of unity is absolute oneness, which cannot be multiplied and is not comparable to anything else and cannot connect to anything else multiplicity is a is a multiplicity of ones and multiplicity can't precede unity any multiplicity has to have been preceded by unity so therefore if god is more than one well there has to be a unity that preceded that in which case the most earliest thing is unity which is god Sixth, 
Everything has accidents. I should mention what accidents is. We've talked about substance and accidents. Accidents. What that means is there are things which take certain qualities. For example, you can have a table and it can have an accident that it's painted red, painted black. That's not its essence. Okay, so everything has accidents about it. <clears throat> While multiplicity is itself an accident of something, the, the accident of quantity, God, who is the creator of <coughs> substance and accidents, cannot have any of the accidents. The seventh one. He says, if there's more than one God, could they both create the world or not? If one, if each one could, then the creator of the world is one. If they needed to together, then that means each one is limited. Remember, limited is composite. Composite comes to being after not being into being, and anything that's brought into being had to have something else that brought into being. So then how could there be two gods? And that brings us back to the point that the world is uniform in its in its, uh, in its anhaga. And Aristotle in his book says, this is the end of Lambda Metaphysics, it's not good that there be many. The head should be one. Or the rule of many is not good, let one the ruler be. So ultimately we accept the fact that there's one God. And that is enough to discuss the plurality of God. That brings us to the eighth chapter. What does it mean to be truly one or to be one to use the word one, but not, not in an exact way. So he says the word one comes from unity. Now there are different kinds of, of oneness. It can be an accidental one, and it can be an essential one. Accidental one, there's two types of those. For example, you have one species, but that includes subcategories. Or you have one army, which is a bunch of people. So that's not truly one. But then you have something that's actually one, like one item, but it itself is really, in terms of its essence, because it's composite, it's matter and form, or substance and accident, then it itself is really not truly one. Truly one, there are two types of truly one. One in the mind and one in action. One in the mind is the one unity of number. All numbers based on one. And that's the first thing, because every number is based on one being first. And that's in the mind, because number is not something tangible, it's only in the mind. <clears throat> the second time, second, but that's only the mind. The second one that's actual, actually exists as one, that's a thing, which cannot be multiplied, cannot change, cannot be divided, and cannot come into being, can't move, can't be comparable to anything, and can't be categorized together with something else. That's, in fact, the truly one, and that's the basis of all <coughs> plurality. And that beginning and end, that, I'm sorry, that true one has no beginning nor end, because then it would have a common existence, and that changes, changes the opposite of unity. And if it's more than one because it changes, it was something else, and then it became into something else. And therefore, the true one cannot change. So that is the true one, which um, is no way of changing, and that's God. Perak, ninth chapter. What's the proof that God is the true one? And here I want to repeat what I said earlier, that we're going over very deep philosophical points. I'm going over it very quickly, and that certainly applies to this, and I'll try to do it some justice, but to really think about this, um, it's really very deep, and it's, I definitely encourage you to think about this if you can. Anything that's composite, for example, as we discussed, everything is composite for matter and form. Two things, matter and the form, have to be combined. So the combination requires a unity between matter and form. Okay, so there are so in a certain sense anything is 
united. In a certain sense, it's plural because it's two things that are united. Everything is like that. Now, what is the cause for this unity and form, and, I'm sorry, and plurality that contribute to everything? Can't make itself. Now, the unity can't make itself. And plurality can make itself. So there has to be something else that could make both unity and plurality. And that must be the true one, the one that exists in actuality. That is the end of that. Similarly, anything which is an accident in something, for example, heat is an accident of something that gets hot. It has to be essential in something and then it could be accidental in something else. So the, so the fire is essentially heat hot. And it could be the heat could come, become in something else accidentally. So oneness, oneness, it so is with everything. And oneness, since there are things that are accidentally one, it has to be that there's something that's essentially one, and that is um, God, who's the true one. Nothing else is truly one in itself, as we discussed earlier. Okay, that's also a very interesting proof. Which again, you have to think about this. And now up to the 10th um, chapter where he talks about why is God, or how is God described with the attributes that we figure out logically or that are written in the Tanakh. So he says some of them refer to God's essence, some of them refer to God's actions. When we talk about the ones that refer to God's essence, we mean they have nothing to do with what he did in creation. And there are three of those. God is Matsui, exists, he's one, and that he always exists, he's Kadmon. And this... The purpose of describing God in this way is to know, is to express to people that there is a creator that they have to worship. Now, why do we say that God exists? Because we see that he exists through reality, through the world. Okay, and something which doesn't exist can't do something. So we know that he exists. When we say he always existed, Kadmoin, because as we discussed, there has to be something that precedes everything and a beginning that has no beginning because it can't go on forever. So it must be always existed. Why do we say he's one? That we discussed also. So those are the three points. Now he says, does that mean God is different? There's three parts about him. He exists, he's one, and he always existed. He says, no. Because really, we only mean to say that he's not <clears throat> plural, and he's not non-existence, and didn't come into existence. Similar, And also, he says, each of these three d descriptions of God, really, and this we had him sounding going to discuss this in a different way, but each of these three descriptions of God, if you understand it correctly, the other two follow along with them. Because the true one has to have always existed. Because something that doesn't exist can't be one. So it exists. And has to have always existed because something that's one cannot change. So if you know unity, you know the other ones. And he explains that, that that's the case for the other two um, attributes too. Look it up. Really, had we have a, if we had a word that could describe all three of these things in one word, we would use it. But, but we don't have such a word. So we use <coughs> these three words, but we really only mean one thing. All attributes say describe God are really negating the opposite. As Aristotle says, the shalilim, the negations about God, are more true than the positive statements about him. Because any attributes are either the description of a substance or an accident, and God described is the creator of substance and accidents can't have substance or accidents while negating things about God is always true and always appropriate. Now, what about the other descriptions of God about his actions? So he says, well, 
we talk about God's actions, which we those God shares with creations, with his creations, because his creatures also act. The only reason we describe God in that way is so that people should understand that he exists and we should accept him. And the Torah uses and the Nevi'im use these use these attributes. For example, they talk about God as if he has a body, talk about God's hands, ears, legs, and eyes, heart, and also talks about God acting. Hashem regretted, Hashem smelled, Hashem remembered, Hashem heard, Hashem woke up. Now this one he says, the Metargim, Targum always made this um, in a way that we should understand, that it's not referring to Hashem, but it's referring to the honor of Hashem, the covet of Hashem, this glory. And he quotes Targum that replaces Vayered Hashem with the Yekarad Hashem. So we shouldn't think that Hashem himself is corporeal. This, the Rambam, <coughs> the Marinabuchim talks about these Targums. And he quotes Avir Rapsadi Goyen, who talks about the same words of days, you might remember that. And he says Rapsadi Goyen talks about this also in his Pirish on the Torah, in Bereshis, and Va'ir, and in Sefi Yitzira. And he agrees that the reason why the Pasuk used these kinds of corporealities about God is so that people should know he exists. Because if people, if the Torah and the Nevi'im would only describe God in ways that are appropriate, then no one would understand the words, no one would understand the ideas. Because simple people should hear it in ways they can understand, which is in corporeal terms and then we should explain to him and then we should explain to that simple person that the Pasuk is being approximate and the truth is really more exalted more sublime and subtle so you should strip then the peels of the words and get to the core idea so that you really understand what God is about while the fool will accept it according to its surface value and therefore will serve God and he says well you know, he has an excuse that he was a fool and he served God to the extent that he could because a person is only demanded to do what he can. But he says, if you're able to learn about it, then you are obligated to do so. And that's the famous statement of Chazal, the Torah talks in a language that man could understand. But here and there, the Torah talks about spiritual matters so that the wise people could understand the truth about God. And this way, everyone knows that God exists even though some people don't have a true concept of him. And this is how it is, and this is a key point, key point that the Rishonim have no problem with saying this, while to us it sounds, uh, it sounds, it sounds like a little bit shocking, but that every subtle matter, for example, the reward in the Olam Haban, the coming world, or the, the, the idea of the, the mind, the, the duties of the mind, which are of actually primary importance, the Torah talks about these things less than it talks about things that are gross and understandable to the masses and it only alludes to these <coughs> abstract things in, 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 in few words so that people of great intellect can um, understand it. Those who seek God will understand everything. Now, for that reason, the Psukim don't talk about Hashem. They often talk about the shame Hashem. Fear the shame Hashem, Hashem, the great name. Why? Because since we can't have a concept of HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself, we talk about his name. Because <clears throat> all we know about HaKadosh Baruch Hu is his existence, that he exists, and his name. Sometimes we talk about the God of the heavens, or, or because that's how we become aware of him. Sometimes we talk about the God of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Why? Because since we can't know HaKadosh Baruch Hu directly, we could think about him through the fact that he was revealed or known to these great people. How do we know anything? How do we know anything? Through our senses, through our minds, or through a tradition. 
We can't know Akash Baruch through our senses. So all we can use is our minds to prove his existence or to have a tradition. We can prove him through creation, therefore we call God the God of the heavens and earth. And we can know him through tradition, therefore we call him the God of the forefathers. All the attributes that the Nevi'im talk about Hashem are to understand the these actions that come that derive from him. And really his actions are infinite, and really his attributes could be infinite, and he quotes that Gemara in Rachis about the attributes of God, that you can't end them, and they really go on ad infinitum. So then he says the following, amazing thing. Here's what you should think about God. Know him through his actions and not through his essence, because he's the closest of the closest in terms of his actions, and he's the furthest of the furthest in terms of his essence. Because in our minds, he has no existence. In our minds, we cannot conceive of God as an existent, as something that exists because we have no concept of how he exists. So that, from your imagination and your senses, God should be as if he has no existence. But from the what he does, it's as if he's never away from you because everything that he does is always with you. That is the highest level of knowing God. And that's what he means when he says, That's what it means to know God. The one who knows God the most is the one who's the most confused about him. That means you're not supposed to have a grasp of his essence. On the contrary, in terms of his essence, it's supposed to be as if he doesn't exist. But in terms of his, what he does, he's always with you. Okay. So the tachlis idea, the, the highest level of knowledge of God, is to be clear that you don't know God's essence. And any concept you have, anytime you have a picture of God in your imagination, you have to use these studies to prove that that concept in your mind in your imagination the picture is incorrect so that the only way you can know god is through study you can only know god you can only find god through thought through pure thought not through imagination and sensory perception <clears throat> this closest example for that is the soul we can prove the soul existence of the soul but we have no idea of what it looks like or shape or smell same thing intellect intellect is very clearly active right we see its ramifications but we don't get we don't have a picture of it or something to an image of it in our thought and obviously the creator himself that of there's nothing like him if we can't talk about the soul we certainly can't talk about god said the philosopher ultimately the bottom line says eventually you have to stop this kind of speculation By the way, he quotes a Pasuk about that, really interesting. Because they saw the Aaron, they suffered. So clearly he understands, the Me'iri says in Yuma 2, that looking at the Aaron means, the problem with looking at the Aaron is that you think about God's essence. Then he says, you know, when it comes to senses, you can't use the sense of hearing to see, or the sense of seeing to hear, etc. And similarly, when it comes to Kaddish Baruch, when it comes to God, you have to use intellect for what it's good for. But the intellect cannot perceive God's essence and that's something that it's be like applying the sense of sight to hear something. So we have to be very careful to understand the attributes that they're not according to the literal meaning and the physical way we should know that they are just a way of being approximate while God is really transcendent above all of them. And one of the philosophers said that someone who wasn't able to understand abstract matters thought, well, look, the prophets describe God in ways that are anthropomorphic, and he didn't realize that the words in the Torah are given according to understanding of the one to whom it was given, and not according to the level of the one who was saying them. 
So let's say, like when you whistle to an animal to dr- bring it to water, right? That's much more effective than if you would give the animal a great wise speech. Similarly, the words of the prophets are like a whistle to bring people to close to Kashbahu, but not according to this his true essence. So then you know God through his wisdom and through his capability that's visible in creation, and then you're part of those who seek Hashem. Now what makes a person lose the true unity of God? That's if you combine something with the Gashbach, meaning either you believe there's two or three gods, or you serve idols, or if you believe God is corporeal, and then there's a hidden shitov, there's a hidden combining something with God, which is to do religious things, to do religious matters, not for God, but for humans. And here's where we see the great sublimity, sublimeness of the Chavis Alavavis. He says that if you do something, and we're going to get this in the fifth your action should be perfectly devoted to God because if you do something for, an, for a person, if you do religious thing for a person, then instead of serving God alone, you're serving God and man. So that tells you how sublime Chavis wants you to be and be before God. Then he ends by saying, you know, a fool might read this and say, what, do I need this book to explain to me um, that a Baruch is one? Don't we know that from the Torah? And he explains about some people won't gain from this book and some people can be damaged from it and who it's for. Um, and truthfully, yes, some people will will not gain from this. Take a look over there for the muscle that he gives. Okay? But ultimately, it's very important for the for the people that can learn from it and reach the light of wisdom and life. And thus we end the first lecture on the Chavis HaLavavis. So we learned his introduction, what this whole book is about. And I think, I hope this brings you into a real, this world of the mind, the sublime world, which is completely separate from this world, involves precious from this world, and involves trying to get to the level of thought and, re- and recognizing that there are things that our Torah just alludes to that are a much higher level, much more fundamental and important part of what the Torah is all about.